0: In normal times, exams can be a cause of stress and anxiety for students. Even those students who've studied and you'd think would be well prepared are subjected to this mounting pressure. In fact, as we now know, these abnormal times are certainly no different. Exams have been replaced with teacher assessment and a process that for some feels uncertain and perhaps even out of their control. However, A significant number of schools have now finished gathering evidence and many students have been released for the summer. But given the interruption to education over the last 12 months and more, do we have the balance right between downtime and catching up? Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, We're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021, or at least what was intended to be their 2021 exams. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. With a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. They could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they can be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, so you can be sure that we're covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at the 2021 exam series and anxiety in the face of assessments. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Jill Duffy. Jill is the chief exec of OCR, and OCR is a leading UK exam awarding body and they provide GCSEs and A-levels in over 40 subjects and offer over 450 vocational qualifications. Jill joined OCR as the CEO in November 2018 and has over 25 years experience in education in various roles across teaching, education, and publishing. Jill, thank you so much for joining me today. Our students find themselves in this odd position. They finish school for the year, hooray, But they have this strange sense of worry, not just about what their grades might be, but also thinking ahead to their next steps. Now, you might think that this isn't uncommon at this time of the year. Typically, students will have sat their exams by now, and the rest is down to marking. But this year, many of our young people, and quite often their parents, are concerned that this might not be a true reflection of their potential. Others worry that with the pandemic, it's an unfair position to put our teens in. We've talked on previous episodes about the difficulty of balance, but have we done enough to alleviate the pressure on students with these alternative arrangements?
1: I think you know one of our principles that we've had at OCR throughout the summer. Our top principle, if you like, is is very much to think about the well-being and the physical safety of both our students and also our teachers around this process. So we have tried to do everything we can to reduce the anxiety around this for students. So, you know, and I think it's important for students to know that they're not alone, that this is the process that, you know, that they're sort of dealing with this this year, but also all their cohort, if you like, all the other students. And it is exceptional. You know, it's different from what happened last year and obviously it's different from what happened in a normal exams year. But they're all in the same boat, if you like. They're all going through the same experience. And we've definitely tried to do everything we can to explain to students what's happening and to reassure them around how their grades will be arrived at this summer.
0: Do you think that message filters through? consistently enough across all of the channels i'm thinking media as well as teachers and what's happening in school for parents
1: i mean we have definitely provided a lot of guidance for teachers teachers are all following the same guidance around what to do this year and we've provided guidance for parents as well as students so that everyone is aware of what's happening this year obviously what we can't 100 percent control is what the media comments on but we have done everything that we can to make sure that people are just very clear about what will happen this year and how their grades will be arrived at.
0: Certainly as a, from the parent perspective, it's felt quite unfortunate that this hasn't all been able to happen in one burst. Actually, I don't know why I've singled out parents as an audience that will feel disadvantaged because of that, because it's been the same, I think, for exam boards right the way through schools and then to students. Do you think there were any alternatives that could have been put in place that could have made this, I suppose, a one hit? And do you think that might have helped?
1: I think what's very easy for people to forget as we go through this summer is that we are dealing with a global pandemic and we are still very much dealing with a global pandemic. So I think for exam boards, you know, working with DFE and Ofqual, what we were intent on doing is coming up with what we thought was the fairest approach that we could do in the circumstances, in what are, you know, very, very difficult circumstances. I think it's very easy to think about, well, there must have been lots of different options here that we could consider. And there were different options that were considered. But I think we very much focused on what we thought would be the fairest approach, given the very, very different levels of impact that there had been in terms of the different impact the pandemic had had, On different students. We knew that there was a lot of lost learning and we knew that that was very different depending on where you were in the country and also what type of school you were attending. We wanted very much to bear that in mind in terms of looking at what options we could consider this year to make it as fair as it possibly could be for students.
0: Because I guess we're still need to get to that point where students are able to move on to their next steps whatever those next steps might be and it really is that that's the driving force of we must end up seemingly with this with the grade and so how can we do that with the minimum level of impact in terms of well-being and as you say bearing in mind fairness
1: yeah and I think you know for us as I say we we had some guiding principles this summer I've talked about one which was really thinking about the physical and mental well-being of students and teachers our other two leading principles was one about progression that students would get the grades pupils would get the grades that would enable them to progress and then that the process should be as fair as it possibly could be so yes that progression and helping students progress to the next stage of their learning and their lives has very much been at the heart you know of our thinking this year.
0: That's a really interesting concept around fairness, isn't it? That it's a level playing field, ideally is, I guess, what you're looking to create. But as you mentioned before, something that reflects this completely unprecedented disparity between schools and what pupils might have learned. That must have been a very, very difficult challenge for yourself and for other exam boards.
1: Well, I think on that, and you know, we've worked very closely with DfE and Ofqual on this, one of the principles that we've got in terms of the evidence that teachers will look at, so teachers in coming up with their grades this year, I know you've covered this in other podcasts, but they'll be looking at a range of evidence of work that students have actually done. And then they will be, making a holistic judgment on the grade based on that evidence. And one of the important principles that we agreed early on was that that evidence should be on what students had had opportunity to learn. So, you know, if students haven't had an opportunity to learn because, you know, their school's been locked down for a long time, then that wouldn't be considered. So, I think That principle of only assessing students on what they've had opportunity to learn is an important principle in terms of the fairness, if you like, of what we're doing to enable that sort of fair judgment of students who've had very, very different experiences of learning during the pandemic.
0: And do you think that will have come at the expense of progressing through the syllabus and specifications to too much of an extent? Because as you say, if there's been lost learning, then... Actually, now as a teacher, I'm going to focus on, quite rightly, you'd imagine, the evidence and what's been learned. There seems very little benefit in trying to start a new topic and then assessing on that if that's not going to help provide the evidence that we need. But for those people who want to go on to study History, for example, at A level, that might be quite a consequence. Mightn't
1: it? Well, it's interesting you pick history, where it may not be that much of a consequence, because history. Even as
0: I said, history. <laughs> I think I remember doing that last time I spoke about this. I, I'm, I'm going to blame my subconscious. Yeah. There's bound to be something in this. So.
1: <laughs> because history, as an example, of course, you know, you can do various topics in history, and you're basically developing a lot of the same skills, whatever topics you teach. So history. Is an example where actually you may not have covered a, a specific topic, but you 'll still develop the skills which will enable you to progress. I think when you come to you know a subject like math say or sciences or any of the subjects where actually it 's a bit more progressive and you need to learn you know you need to sort of build up those steps, then obviously that could cause a problem with progression so I think what 's key is You know, if you're going into A-level, say, and you want to take maths and you may have missed out, it's really important going into your next school or college if you're going into another school or staying within your own school that people know what you've covered and what you haven't covered. And I think that sort of almost diagnostic assessment when you're going to your next phase will be crucially important. And there will need to be catch-up if there are, you know, important concepts or important topics that you haven't had chance to cover. So I think that sort of catching up as you get into your next stage will be really important. And we know that, you know, certainly sixth form colleges, FE colleges and also universities are very aware of that. We know they were last year as well, and that they have you know, put on various catch-up sessions, if you like, to enable students to catch up on that learning they haven't had and to progress into that next stage.
0: And so it's important that students don't feel overwhelmed or even start to second guess what their preferred choices might be against this idea of lost learning. Because as you say, actually, there's an entire support network that's geared to that. These are not isolated incidents. It's, it's a it's a global pandemic. And as you said before, we're, we're all in the same boat, even if our experience experiences might be slightly different. But a number of parents, I think, have been quite surprised, certainly in the GCSE and A-level years, that a number of schools, I don't know that it's all of them, but I think it's certainly a majority, will have finished their education and teaching around about this point, which wouldn't have been abnormal in an exam series year, because revision has been done, exams have taken place. In my day, this was the time to crack out the monopoly and the scrabble and maybe do some stuff around the school. But but now it seems much more that the schools will close to those years. As I say, I think parents are quite surprised that, that happens rather than using this as an opportunity to sort of cover some parts of the specifications or syllabus that quite understandably weren't picked up before. Do you think that's something that we ought to have looked at more?
1: I think it's Probably fair to say that my experience from talking to sort of schools, people in schools at the moment, or school heads, is it's a very mixed picture. Like you say, I have come across quite a few schools who, you know, said goodbye at the start of this half term break. There are others that haven't, that are bringing students back after half term, and some schools that are bringing them back to start on the next phase, if you like, you know, and some of that catch up that I've talked about. So I think it's a very mixed picture. Out there you know it will vary school by school college by college the approach that they're taking and how much learning they will be doing next term as you say in a normal year with exams they wave goodbye to them and also you know there are things that we as parents can be doing if we know that you know what a levels or vocational qualifications our children are going on to do then, you know, there can be sort of things that can go on in terms of preparing for that. There are lots of, you provide, I know you provide them on your site as well, there are an awful lot of resources out there students can use to sort of prepare for the academic year ahead, if their schools have sort of said goodbye to them after this half term.
0: It's an interesting balance, again, it seems to be a bit of a theme, doesn't it? But on the one hand, you're aware that Children, young people might have missed out on, or well, will have missed out on, some of the topics and subject matter that they might come across or might need for their next steps. But on the other hand, it seems like adding insult to injury to take away the time that they would have seen last year and previous years have as sort of their extended summer. It's almost like a rite of passage that they can go out and enjoy what little of uh, British summertime we tend to have. <laughs> but at the same time, as you say, for those who want to go on to further education or higher education in terms of A-level students, actually drip feeding and keeping going would seem to be a way in which you could balance the wellbeing aspects of not feeling like your school holidays are being ripped away from you unceremoniously, but also an eye to the future and being aware that actually you're going to need to Sort of keep things going.
1: It's got to be that balance, hasn't it? Because we know pupils have lost learning, but we also know they've lost a lot of time with their friends and social activities and being able to, you know, go out and play football or tennis, whatever it's been. That all has been taken away from them. So I think, you know, crucially, it's got to be that balance, hasn't it? We know our young people have been impacted negatively by this pandemic. And we know that, you know, that mental health issues have increased So we have to get that balance right for them. We don't want them to feel anxious that, oh, I've lost so much learning. We want them, you know, to build those relationships back with their friends as well and to start doing more social activities. It's a really sort of important balance to get right, I think, so that, you know, they can have a happy summer, so that they can really go back into either school or university in the autumn feeling more relaxed and feeling, as you said, as though they have enjoyed this sort of summer break as well.
0: You mentioned about the mental health instances, I guess, are increasing. Is that something that as an exam board you're mindful of in any other year?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean I don't profess to be a mental health expert, but mental health and well-being is certainly something we as an exam board take very seriously. I mean, you know, as a parent myself who's helped, you know, both my daughters through multiple years of exams and one of them who was highly anxious about it. You know, I take this really seriously and we do as an exam board what we can as our part to really help students and, and, you know, to give a couple of examples of those. Even when we're developing a qualification, we're developing a qualification at the moment which we hope will get approved and go ahead on GCSE Natural History. And in terms of what that qualification you know, should include. We've included students as part of our stakeholder advisory group on there. So we've included young people from a brilliant organisation called Teach the Future to give their views on it so that we are representing, you know, the voice of students in terms of what's covered in our qualifications. But we're also very mindful of what we call the exam hall experience in a normal year. So what we can do to make that as you know, stress-free as possible. Of course, it's never going to be completely stress-free, but we do things like make sure you know we have accessibility guidelines, so we make sure that the language we use in our exam papers is as straightforward as possible. The context that we use will be as relatable to by teenagers as possible, and we use you know names of students in our exam papers that reflect, if you like, the ethnic mix of the student group. So we try and do everything we can to make that as straightforward as possible and our exam papers as straightforward as possible when they're in the exam hall. So we do as much as we can, as well as providing well-being advice on our websites so that we can really try help students. So that is a sort of major, major thing that we think about the whole time. What is the impact going to be on students of what we're doing? We try and, you know, improve that experience every year.
0: Because as you said, the exam hall stress and anxiety is, is a feature of exams. I think it's it is. How it is, but also how far would or ought we go to remove it? Removal of stress doesn't build resilience, does it, in students? And and while I'm not saying that exams are a feature of life, it's it's actually quite peculiar to education, I think. Actually, there is something in it. I went through it, it made me the man I am today, and all of that kind of nonsense. Actually. Is there something in that that we need these elements of exposure to stress to help us to understand how to deal with it and and resilience and and all of those kinds of things?
1: I think we need to make sure there isn't what I would call unnecessary stress around it, that we make it as straightforward as possible. You know, I was looking at some stats on this recently and I think for A-level the stats are that 15% of males are highly anxious about A levels, 30 to 35% of females are highly anxious. I think when you're getting up to figures like 35% are highly anxious, then you know we are beholden to do as much as we can to reduce that stress level and to make sure we're doing everything that is in our power to, you know, reduce those stress levels in exams so that we're not doing things that unnecessarily pals. That stress on because of how we might be expressing a question or something like that, so yes, of course, we can never make this something that students are going to sit there and think great i've got an exam on Monday we, but we can make it a more acceptable experience. I think that 's what we aim to do. that statistic
0: is fascinating isn't it? I fear that we could take ourselves off in an entirely different direction. The levels of stress that people feel, I imagine is increasing, so that declaration and I think. Sociologically, that's, that's in part due to people being more willing and accepting of their own mental health issues and the ability to deal with it. But also that disparity between 15% male and 30 to 35% female is incredible, isn't it? That The group of young people with similar external life experiences to that point should... Experience and declared this in such different ways.
1: Yeah, I'm a mother of two daughters, so I haven't lived through the male experience of it. I can only talk from having lived it with two daughters. You know, I think as parents, we can do a lot about it. I think certainly, you know, what I've found with both my daughters is there can be an air of perfectionism about, you know, wanting to do the very best. There's also that sort of catastrophizing that goes on that they imagine the worst possible thing that could happen. And I think, you know, as parents, we can do an awful lot to alleviate that because some of that stress can be, oh my God, what will my mum say or my dad say if I don't get these grades? So I think as parents, there's an awful lot that we can do to set, you know, the grades in that broader life context that, you know, there are many paths in life if you don't get exactly the grades that you want other things will come up so I think you know there are very practical things with parents that we can do almost talking about a plan b if you like if you don't get the grades or what we'll do if you don't get the grades that helps alleviate some of that some of the stress that you know that young people can put on themselves because they're worrying about what their parents might think if we can help alleviate that and make them see that it won't be the most important thing in their life, what happens on A-level results day, it's important, but it's not that important, then, you know, I think that can help really relieve the pressure on our young people.
0: Mm, Absolutely. We've had some really interesting episodes previously that, that mention exactly those kinds of things around the catastrophizing, the perfectionism and fear of failure, and absolutely the impact that that has on it. And part of that, as you say, is role modelling the good behaviours, not to undermine the effort to say, well, it doesn't matter what happens in the end, go with it, because it's still about doing your best and working towards a goal and really wanting to attain, but understanding that if something happens outside of your control, that actually knowing that you've done your best or knowing that there are alternatives is key. And on those alternatives, actually, we've got the announcement, of course, of the autumn exam series, which is a possibility for students who don't get the grades that maybe they think that they would have done. How popular were, as I remember, there was a similar retake or autumn exam series last year. How popular were they in 2020 against the centre assessed grades?
1: I mean, there was definitely a very small percentage of students that went on to take those exams in the autumn term. I think it was important that they were there because if students weren't happy with the were centre assessed grades last year then they had you know that opportunity to take an exam in the end a very very small percentage of students took those exams in the autumn but you know they were there as a sort of safety net if you like for those that wanted to you know see how they did if they actually sat an exam they'll have exactly the same function this year so no I'm not anticipating that we'll have Lots and lots of students wanting to retake those eggs or wanting to take exams in the autumn, but it's important that they're there. And I think it's important, you know, psychologically for students that they know that they're there as well. So if they really do want to, they have that opportunity to sit exams in the autumn.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's a similar argument for the appeals process, isn't it? It's it's that safety net, as you mentioned there, that you know that it's there for people with a grievous complaint, if you like, or a case where they think that they really have been given a score that doesn't reflect truly what they can do. So either the appeal or then the autumn reset are there as, as sort of safety nets. Certainly from my own experiences of talking to students and parents last year, I think it was quite heartening actually that so many of them became quite philosophical about the results that they had and were able to move on from what the GCSE mark was to think about actually the future. And so I'm putting that behind me. I've learned from the experience and I'm I'm now really going to focus my energies on this new thing.
1: I think that's really important, you know, and I think thinking about what happens on results day, if a student isn't happy about, you know, their result on results day. And I think given everything that we're doing, we're hoping that that will be a rare occasion because students can have a conversation with their teacher about the evidence that the teachers will will use to come up with their grade the teacher can't tell them the grade that they're going to get but they can certainly share with them the evidence that they'll be using to come up with that grade so what we're hoping is when it comes to results day there won't be that many surprises on results day but as you say it's important that on results day that if there is a surprise that that first of all that they can talk to their teacher or they talk to their current school or college about what's happened and explore the options that are open to them at that point. And as you mentioned, there is an appeals process that's there as a safety net for students. The other thing that I think it's really important for students to do on results day is also to talk to their new institution, if you like. Now it may, if you're GCSE and you're just staying in the school in the same school, you don't need to do that. But obviously, if you're going to sixth form college or you're going to university, it's important to open those conversations with where you're planning to go next. If your results come as a surprise and you're not, you know, they're not quite what you were expecting. It's important to have the conversation, say, first of all, with your own teachers, but then also to think about those other institutions that you're going to next and have a conversation with them.
0: Because as you say, those conversations with teachers should should take an awful lot of the surprise away. If I know that my daughter had three sevens pieces of work that have been submitted, that I probably shouldn't be looking towards a nine. But I guess you should realistically expect something either side of that. Again, thinking of the great descriptors, they were broad. So I guess it could fall into that. What we've also found, which I think is really interesting, is schools had been talking about three pieces of evidence that they might be providing. One of them quite often has been unmarked. So as a liberal, obviously the teachers have marked it, but that grade with that mark hasn't been shared. So actually still leaving some Wiggle room seems like entirely the wrong kind of phrase here, but some room for manoeuvre, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, as I say, what we've encouraged schools to do is, and encouraged students is to have those conversations about the range of evidence that will be used. Obviously, what we're not saying is that you should share that final grade with students, because when the grades are submitted they will also go through a quality assurance process. So it's important that those grades aren't shared at that point because those grades might change. But, you know, a lot of students will have, a and a lot of students and parents will have a good idea of what they'll be expecting to get, I think, before we get to results day.
0: And as I understand it, and I guess to be clear, the quality assurance process isn't a remarking exercise. This is a way of helping to standardise, as far as you can, one school against another, where approach to marking might be different. It's not second-guessing or undermining the teacher's holistic judgment.
1: No. And I think what's important to know is the quality assurance process sort of extends throughout the process. So... You know, all schools and colleges, all teachers will be following the same guidance that has been, you know, the JCQ guidance. So it's all common guidance. We've already been reviewing as awarding bodies. We've all been reviewing the centre policies that centres have, that schools and colleges have to make sure that that's following the guidance. If it hasn't, we've been going back to schools and colleges and talking to them. The next stage will be after the grades are submitted, when schools will supply, you know, the evidence that they base some of those grades on. And we'll be looking at that evidence. So we'll be looking to make sure that they followed the process that they should have been, that they should have been following. And we will be looking at some of the evidence as well to make it you know, to see that it supports the grades that the schools have been given.
0: And again, I mean, it's an unenviable task, I think, that you're trying to create a standardised version when there is no standardised approach because of lost learning, because of schools dealing in different ways, and absolutely by the principle that you talked about before of only assessing students on what it is that they've learned. So in many instances, I'm sure this is going to feel like a case of judging apples and oranges rather than apples and apples
1: well you know what we'll be looking at is the evidence that the school has used and the grade that they have come up with and looking at whether that is a reasonable judgment if you like based on that evidence has the school reasonably given the grades that look like a reasonable academic judgment so of course it's going to differ in terms of you know the evidence that schools provide But they will all have been following the same process and the same guidance. You know, we will be looking to say, OK, we're looking at this grade or this, this student, they've been given this grade. This is the evidence. Does that look reasonable? So the evidence may differ by school by school in terms of what they've used. But the process they followed will be very, very similar. And we'll be looking at, is it a reasonable judgment that we're looking at here? So there's been
0: in the press recently, actually, I'm conscious it sounds like I'm media bashing, (laughs) but been actually horrified to see reports of pupils, parents, sort of gearing up for legal action against this. And I think it really does probably come down to this idea of reasonableness. This is where lawyers can make an awful lot of money, as someone who did a law degree. And sort of arguing that point, do you think it is helpful or even realistic, I guess, to start talking in those terms at this point, given that actually evidence submission hasn't completed and results haven't been given out?
1: I think that, you know, looking at the process, the following and what we're doing, I don't think there will be that many parents that in the end think it will be a sensible thing to involve a lawyer. So I don't think it's a wide scale problem that we'll be facing. But as you say, You know, what I said earlier, we can't control the media and the stories that the media picks up on. You know, what I would say to parents is there are already opportunities, as we say, schools are being open about what evidence they're basing the grades on. Students can ask about that, parents can ask about it. So, Asking those questions now rather than waiting for results day would seem to be very sensible. What parents have to avoid, though, is looking as though they're putting any pressure on schools because that would constitute malpractice, student malpractice. But a student having a conversation about the evidence that's been used, I think, you know, is a very sensible thing to be doing. So I think, you know, it's about doing everything on results day, thinking about the safety nets that are there. There is an appeals process. It's a two-stage appeals process where you can, first of all, do what's called a centre review, which is talking to the centre about whether they've made an administrative error, for example, You know, have they transcribed a sort of grade for one piece of evidence in the wrong way. And then if a parent still isn't happy at that point, they can have an appeal, ask the school or college to launch an appeal with the exam board, and that can be there on the basis of academic judgment. So there are avenues for parents and students to go down. As I say, you know we're expecting that that will be relatively rare, that people will go down an appeal route, but that appeal route is there. So there are various safety nets, if you like, throughout this process that means that parents really shouldn't need to be talking to lawyers.
0: It's interesting to think about that in combination with everything that exam boards and schools and the system, I think, to be fair, is doing to remove the extraneous, unnecessary stresses and pressure insofar as is possible, as you said, combined with role modelling the good behaviours and... Saying the worst comes to worst, we can sue doesn't necessarily feel like the right kind of behavior to model as a parent. It seems to be putting an awful lot of pressure on children to say, well, actually, the grade is the be all and end all. Now, I do accept completely that there are avenues and there are times when appeals may not work out. There are other resets and other safety nets. And so there are recourses that are open to everyone. But at this time, it feels right to stay calm (laughs) And, and really think about what's in the best interest of students.
1: I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think thinking what's in the best interest of the student and of the child, keeping that in the sort of forefront of the mind and thinking about, you know, on results day, as I say, having those conversations with the teacher, but also thinking about the next step—if there's a university offer, having a conversation with the university, and thinking about the pragmatic things to be doing, so that you know the child can progress—I think it's far more important than thinking well, I'm going to go down a legal route and challenge this grade, because you say it gives the wrong impression. If this is about, you know, decatastrophizing, if you like, if it's about, you know, knowing that life has got lots of different paths that can go down and, and thinking sensibly about that, then it, you know, as a parent, it's got to be what, you know, what's the right thing to do for my child in this situation? And recourse to legal action is very you know, in very, very few cases, would that be the right approach?
0: At the risk now of taking us into a catastrophized route, <laughs> I'd like to just think for a moment about, or speculate, I guess, about what might happen next year and 2022 exams cohorts. I'm going to preface this, and I'm fairly sure you will as well, that obviously nothing has been decided and that nothing's out. But <laughs> having said that, what we do know is that students who are taking exams next year, and possibly even the year after, and maybe year after, but certainly next year have been directly impacted by the global pandemic. What kind of dispensations, accommodations might you expect to see coming through, if any?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that, you know, we are talking about with DFE and Ofqual at the moment. You know, as you say, there's been, we know there's been lost learning in year 10s and year 12s. I think our own research at OCR showed that, you know, those year groups have lost between about 20 and 40% of their total learning time. So quite significant learning loss. DfE has already run a consultation around what we call non-exam assessment. So this could be the coursework in GCSEs or A-levels, and it could be around things like fieldwork. We haven't heard the conclusions of that yet, but that's closed. I I think they'll be looking to say what will happen there. Any changes... Beyond that, and I think there will be changes beyond that, will be subject to consultation again. So everyone has an opportunity to say what they think should happen in terms of exams next year. I think what's important at the moment, certainly in terms of what teachers are doing, is we've obviously got this looming deadline of the 18th of June for when they submit all their grades to exam boards. That is all consuming for them at the moment. But we, we all know how important it is that when, you know, schools start back in the autumn, that teachers and students actually know what will be happening with their exams. So I think everyone's aware how keen people are to know, but there will be, you know, DFE will run consultations around potential changes and potential options that people will have. You know, opportunity to feed back on.
0: From a really selfish point of view, as the dad of a teen girl who will be taking her GCSEs next year, I think that's one of the big things, isn't it? I mean, we talked earlier in terms of removing unnecessary stress. And I think uncertainty is a key driver. And certainly not knowing whether or not all of your course will be in there from a teacher's perspective, not knowing necessarily whether all aspects need to be taught or, for example, will hold off on poetry because there was an accommodation made in 2021, makes things very difficult and can add mounting pressure. So certainly, I guess, a number of us parents and teachers, and I'm sure exam boards, will hope that these kinds of decisions are reached
1: quickly. I think we were fully aware of the uncertainty, as you say, both from a student perspective, a parent perspective, and also a teacher perspective. So everyone you know, is working at the moment to provide that clarity, you know, as quickly as we can so that people know what they will be covering and what they won't be covering. As an English graduate, I would argue that maybe not dropping poetry. Because poetry is for life, not just for GCSE, but then, you know, that's a person.
0: (laughs) There's there's an entire T-shirt range to be made from that, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So finally, again, if we come back to thinking about the 2021 exam year students, GCSEs and A-levels, do you have any advice or practical tips for those students who might be concerned, or parents who might be concerned as well, about either the results that they get and what it might mean for their next steps.
1: You know, my practical tips, looking to sort of results day, if you like, is, you know, to make sure on results day, whatever happens. And, you know, I hope the vast majority of students, they're going to be very happy on results day. But if something doesn't go according to plan, then it is about, you know, talking to teachers about that and talking to the people, in so talking to teachers in your current school but also talking to those in the receiving institution if you're planning to go to, say, Sixth Form College or if you're going on to university. University admissions departments were brilliant last year. They know what students are going through this year, what pupils are going through. They are there to help as well. And, you know, Sixth Forms will also be there to help. It's in no one's interest, really, to be turning students away Everyone, you know, wants to get the best sort of progression routes, if you like, for students. So I think, you know, for students and for parents, just remember to talk to your own teachers, consider the options that are available to you, but also to those receiving institutions and have those conversations. And that's where parents can help as well, because having lived through, you know, GCSE and A-level results days, they are pressured. They are very you know, they can be quite pressurised for both parents and students and parents can really help there, I think, in, in keeping calm, in thinking about what the logical things are to do and in just reassuring, you know, their, their children that this will work out and they will work with them. So I think having those conversations, being prepared to pick up the phone to a university, say, if you're in an application where you may have just missed your fur, and having that conversation is a really important thing to do.
0: And I'm guessing as we sit here recording on a sunny day in June that students should maintain that balance and also think about trying to enjoy as much as they can of their free time while they've got it.
1: Absolutely. I think enjoy the free time. There will be some students who are going back after half term. There may even be some students who have still got some assessments that they'll be doing. Um, And I think having that balance, making sure that you're getting breaks you know that you are focused you are working if you've still got work to do but that you're enjoying the summer as well because you know it's not just about making up learning loss it's about making up some of those social experiences that you know all our young people have not had over the pandemic and yes enjoy the summer as much as you can especially in a nice warm day in june when we've got the sun out (laughs)
0: Jill, thank you so much for your time and your openness. Balance is a theme that we keep coming back to, and quite rightly. This is a pressured time for our teens in any year, and I think this year is bound to feel amplified. I'm encouraged hearing from Jill that the focus, first and foremost, is on well-being, to reflect this additional pressure. The experience of this year could have a lasting effect, and so it's absolutely right that it's treated sensitively. However, you cannot ignore the role and function that getting a grade has. It not only reflects the attainment to this point in time, but it also helps to determine the suitability for the next step. And that's why it's right that Jill's further two principles of fairness and progression just seem to make sense. We've talked exhaustively about the difficulties of assessing the students this year. Not only is it phenomenally difficult to standardise grading across schools, but each student can only be assessed on the learning that they've had. I certainly wouldn't want to be in that position where trying to determine the outcomes, managing expectations and maintain fairness across the board. For that reason, I think it's absolutely right that there are contingency plans in place for those students who feel that their teacher assessments do not reflect either their current level which would come in the form of an appeal or their potential in the form of this autumn exam series i think it'll be really interesting to see what the take up is like on these on the one hand you sort of think if they've done enough to get to their next stage then let's encourage them to close the chapter on on this particular stage and move on and as we heard from dr dominique thompson way back in the very first episode life is wiggly However, on the other hand, we live in a very competitive world and some may feel that their children's next steps are predicated on top scores. And we can all of us only do what we think is right by taking into account the whole of our child's experience. My daughter's collecting her GCSE results this year for for one subject and I'm definitely going to do my best to heed Jill's advice around the results day and also thinking about it in the run-up. It's down to us as parents to role model the behaviours that we would hope our children will exhibit. It does them no favours at all to start undermining the process, or second guessing what might happen, or even catastrophising. And I think this this catastrophising and dramaticness is something that we see all too often in the news and also in social media. And this does not help our young people. I've been really reassured by the conversations that we've had in this podcast with Ofqual, JCQ and the exam boards, of course, including Jill today. Now, all that remains is to wait for the results and approach the outcome in a pragmatic way. For many, thinking ahead and factoring in a bit of catch up and reading ahead might be time well spent throughout the long summer holidays. But in all honesty, I'm not sure at that age that it would have been something that I would have relished. So in the meantime, our young people perhaps should just enjoy their break as much as they're able. The summer will be over soon enough, and it's difficult to begrudge anyone a healthy amount of downtime after the year that we've all had. To this point, I absolutely love Jill's counter to the worries about lost learning, with the recognition that students have also lost social connections. It might be perhaps a little dramatic to think about this as a lost childhood, but the truth is. The impact on our teens is deeper than not covering all of a course, and I think we'll all do well to remember that. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and found it interesting. If you did, perhaps you'd take a moment to leave a five-star rating and perhaps a review too. It really does help us to reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, sharing the link to this and other episodes with your friends on social media is always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.